Hey everybody, this is the third audio podcast for Let's Venture and um, for the uninitiated, Let's Venture is today India's largest marketplace where we enable founders to connect with investors and help them raise their early stage funding. We've also launched a family office platform called LV Titans where we now work on growth stage startups helping them raise alternate growth capital. Today, our focus of the podcast is to look at the trends and um, founder behavior and angel behavior between Silicon Valley and India. And with me, I am joined by two very active investors in Silicon Valley, Sanjay Singh, CEO of Unboxed, an active angel since 2010, investing across India and the US. And I have Nishka Mehta, who is a former head of mobile and growth strategy at Hulu and also an active angel investor since 2010 across India and US. So now we get started. Over to you, Sanjay. Currently at Unbox, but uh, prior to Unbox, I was at Akamai Technologies uh, for about 18 years. And uh, to kind of sum up that 18 years, I would say that what I was doing at Akamai was really building the businesses and building the organization to scale it. Uh, I was part of the earlier team there, it's sub 100 in an employee uh, ranking, but then by the time I left Akamai, it's uh, well over 7,000 people, two and a half billion in revenue across the globe. Uh, played an active part in building products uh, and go to market, uh, predominantly in the Asia market. Uh, so hi, um, it's great to be here. and. Um you know, and, and, and so I'm currently working with a stealth streaming video company here up here in the Bay Area, formerly, as Shanti had mentioned, led mobile and also growth strategy at Hulu in L.A. And, you know, spent, um, you know, spent the more formative years of my career being an entrepreneur in digital media um, and, and, and gravitated towards working with guys like Naspers and the BBC iPlayer in London, spent some time in India being, you know, spending time with the family business and also learning more about the budding tech ecosystem that was coming up back in 2010 and primarily focus on 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 investing in startups um, you know which have a mobile and and and, and frankly a global product play yeah uh, so that those are the ones you know where I can personally add the most operational insight yeah. and, and help out the most yeah so basically just this podcast I thought since I'm in San Francisco attending the by Combinator Demo Day, I think it would be a good opportunity for us to look at, you know, how does the ecosystem look in Silicon Valley, how does it look in India. Like last week when I was actually watching the Demo Day, there's one startup which is trying to preserve the brain, right, so literally like one end of the spectrum in terms of deep technology. Of course, there were other startups who were also doing very similar ideas. It's not like all the startups presented were kind of breakthrough technology, right? But just from a perspective of of you being investing, having invested between India and the US, I would love each of you to kind of talk about, you know, what are the technology trends you're you're kind of seeing in the US and and as you look at the Indian market and, and meet a lot of founders, what are the trends you see in India? Yeah, um, I think, you know, just from a high level, I think, you know, that like the themes which which tends to interest me the mo- most is, you know, how do you solve for excess capacity which exists in, in any system, right? And, and and so we're starting to, or I guess we've seen that with, with companies like Uber or Lyft, which took, you know, the excess capacity that was there with either, you know, cars that just sit in the garage and even individuals who might be freelancing. Uh, but I think, you know, the, and, and, and so, so I feel like we've seen 
this play out more you know, from a supply side where some supply has been unblocked. But I think, frankly, where we haven't seen a lot of innovation and, and something which I'm tracking closely is, is, is things within the actual supply chain, right? And there's a very common um, you know, um, lesson that you have in business school, which is around what is known as the bullwhip effect, right? Which is you know, that say you have a small disruption um, or, or you know, excess demand for mangoes in the summer, well, the odds are that when you go back up the supply chain, there's a very big swing in, in like the amount of, of supply that somebody needs to create as it goes to the supply chain, right? And so the idea that you could have apps which could help forecast, you know, how, or, or even plan your, your, your food menus for the week means you, you could have significant cost savings when you go upstream, right? And so it's ideas like that, which, you know, which I'm seeing as like the next wave of on-demand, um, yeah. which excite me. And, 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 and frankly, there's a bunch of different ways to solve it using AI, using machine vision, using ML. Um, and, and so I feel like we're starting to see a lot of that. We're seeing trust issues solved with blockchain, again, going up and down the supply chain, or even looking at it from a product perspective, which, you know, which I personally find quite interesting. Good. Um, so maybe a, a few uh, slivers of the same tone uh, that Nishan brought up is one is is I think making human beings more efficient, right? I think if you look at everything that the world is headed to and every technology that is being uh, very prolific in the world is all around efficiency, right? Whether if we uh, earlier we talked about the the leveraging a the Uber-like model or, or, or this whole capacity of, of, of uh, you know, excess capacity and supply, that model to efficiency around time management and, and overall uh, shift in the education models that we've seen. It's, it's all around human. I think that's one avenue that I look at personally is that how are you evolving um, the time constraint that an individual has, whether it's, in, it's a B2C model or a B2B model, right? Shopping behaviors to enterprise um, efficiency that's there. Um, the second thing is really uh, breaking barriers of traditional world is, is, an, is the other way to look at it. Whether you look at crypto, which is you know, a controversial topic depending upon how you look at it, or block, or whether even if you look at uh, the ability to share data, right? Uh, I think you know, F FB is in big controversy on that, but this whole notion of the world operated in one way, uh, whether it was the industrial revolution to like the you know, software revolution that happened in the 90s, now it's changing dramatically. So any disruption that comes in, AR, VR is part of that disruption, healthcare and, and AI on how we talks to, I think that is probably a big area from a strategy perspective that I look at and say, you know what, it's just, it is so disruptive that it changes the next generation of human beings. And anytime you have that, that's a fun place to invest. Yeah. Maybe not the fun, uh, best place to make money off of it as an investor, but it's fun to invest because you, you see uh, ideation happening uh, that probably is not visible in a traditional enterprise. Yeah. Right? So don't you think that AI and ML have almost become like cloud, right? Like almost like there is nothing, I mean, it is almost mandatory that when you're building a deep tech kind of system, you need to have those technologies inbuilt into it. So it's almost like you have to be there. But in terms of vertical sectors, are you seeing any applications of, 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 of what you both talked about into like sectors like healthcare, education, do you see any one sector kind of more interesting than the others or? Sure. And so I think, you know, the, my personal investment thesis, yeah. and it is to be like a bit of a contrarian, because if you play to the consensus, then I think, you know, that like, low, you know, the, the upside which you generate gets, gets priced in already. Yeah. And so the bits, you know, which I personally find interesting is looking at 
you know, you know, slightly saturated sectors haven't, you know, fully saturated yet. But then going back to, to, to companies which might be, you know, um, approaching the basics very okay. differently. Okay. And so an example of that is, you know, that if you look at the on-demand space, for example, right, and, and, and it feels just very saturated, but if you step back and, and, and you actually look at the space between an Uber and Lyft, or, or even, you know, looking at India between Ola and Uber, um, you know, then what you have is are these two very large, almost, you know, monopolistic businesses or, or two supply and demand sources that don't speak to each other. Which means, you know, that if you were some shopkeeper who wants to use an Uber Lyft as a logistics platform to have one item delivered to another, it's actually very inefficient. You know, and, and, and so looking at businesses that can take, you know, what, what feels saturated, what like a lot of investors might look at on demand and like write it off, you know, I, I feel like that's when it is the right time for me to go in and to help out with operational insight. And, and so there's companies like Bird, um, you know, which are scaling up pretty quickly here in California. The idea being that you have this little Razor scooter, which you can, you know, pick up on demand. It's app unlocked. And so I think, you know, that that's another example of the kinds of businesses which I find quite interesting. That's a pretty interesting kind of observation. It's almost like you're talking about collaboration between competitors in a large market, right? Yeah. Somewhere interoperability where as an end cons um, consumer, I can kind of interoperate between like Uber and Ola, mm -hmm. right? As a business. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Sanjay, what about? I, I, yeah. I think um, I'll, I'll uh, bring it back to the question that you raised. Is you're right. No, I, I remember back in '99 when I joined Akamai and people used the word cloud and we all kind of laughed, saying, "No, we're a distributed platform. Cloud is great. It's not what." But uh, the reality is, evolution happened and, and a proper definition came up. And the same thing will happen with with AI per se. Uh, the the way that I view this is that in each one of these categories, uh, when you look at it, is what is the what's the use case that's being solved? Like if you look at the example uh, Nishkam talked about about you know, uh, Bird or or the Uber, it's if AI enables that uh, in in a in a way that you know people can understand it, it's better. Um, the way I would say it is that AI with human influence, right? How do you really take a lot of this learning that machine can create but then give the empowerment to the human to say okay now that this machine has given you all these attributes what is the best decision to be made uh, and not just that everything is an AI box I think that that's the that's the way I look at it is because I think sometimes AI will will uh, take a lot more uh, you know, binary decision making where soft components of whether a business strategy or a engagement model with a customer or something gets lost. Yes. Uh, ultimately, I think still people do business with people. Uh, so you have to kind of add that human element. So a lot of uh, examples that even my current company, what we, we do is is around um, things around mass merchandising. If, if you're driving a merchandising behavior in a particular market or a geography, you, the machine gives that ability to to that merchandiser to have now more intelligence than they had in the past, which was a lot more gut check effect. But then you let them make that decision rather than just making that decision on their behalf. Um, that's that's kind of where I would see the first step to go to, and then then evolution will happen. But I think that if that's like me having a magic eight ball, which I don't. No, so I think it's a very interesting again uh, point because I met a startup last week who said, you know, we are bringing in the human element to AI. So we're actually building a service layer on top of AI because we believe just having that in that space they were operating in is not going to help solve the problem. So I think startups are already thinking 
in that direction now since both of you have been investing since 2010 i want to now shift the gear to the indian context mm-hmm. right so just want to understand since both of you have been living in the us right how did you decide you want to actually start working with startups in india because 2010 i think it was still a lot more nascent the ecosystem so would love to hear from you you know what actually incentivize you to pick up those indian investments and over time like from 2010 to 2018 right what what is the kind of transition you've seen among the indian founders and the maturity how has it evolved in the indian ecosystem so sanjay you want okay. to go first sure so when i first uh, started investing my view was very much about find companies that are solving the local problem because the 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 whole belief was that india was on that massive uh, transition point of shifting into the digital world right um, commerce was right about there picking up uh, or or was it at that inflection point of acceleration and a lot of um, unique um what i would call india use cases were coming up right how do you do uh, education in a, in a certain uh, model especially with some of the acquisitions that had happened i think one of tutor vista or something had yes. gotten acquired at that time so that was that that era when you think about what was transitioning i think the pivot that i see now is it's not just about what is happening in the india use cases it's really truly trying to uh become technology leaders people are trying to look at the tech stack of uh, especially you know in the tech tech world and say how am i building a much better tech at a global level right and that's a big shift that i've seen uh, especially even if you look at an indian uh, you know big name like uh, freshworks or freshdesk the companies that that uh, they've acquired and stuff they've really acquired tech behind it not necessarily just the a simple bed so i think that's one uh, the, the second thing is this massive pivoting uh, of trying to build global businesses from there right i think our our uh, uh, you know biggest use case that we could look at is in mobi right they kind of pioneered that trying to build everything out of india go out be be in 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 multi million dollar companies i think that's there um so when i look at the you know when i was starting i looked at those trends now my trends have pivoted to saying that what are um, what are founders doing to create a global play out of india and especially in the b2b i'm more in, personally i'm more interested in the b2b space the one last point that i'll say is that the founder that i met in 2010 and their knowledge base and their way of solving both tech and business problems is massively different than the founder i see today right you have a a much more a knowledgeable a person that has thought through a lot more about what strategy they want to implement as compared to the person at that time which was just passionate about the idea uh, the guy the, the person today the co-founder or the founder today is still passionate about the idea but has a better plan in play uh, as compared to the the previous one and i think that's that's the big shift that i've seen there's a lot of other variables but that's the biggest thing because you bet on the jockey as much as you bet on the horse when you're doing angel investing so yeah so the same thing you know in let's venture since the time we started it was 2013 i think 15 16 we saw a lot of bubble we saw a lot of people come in and fly by night kind of angel investors also but i think in the last 2 years rightly as you said sanjay i think the maturity of the founders their ability to think deeply into what they're trying to solve i think that has kind of really changed in how people are looking at starting up yeah no i think you know that's spot on and i think you know that also resonates with uh, 
you know, with the, with the experiences which I personally had. So I started off, you know, opportunistically investing in 2010, mostly with expat friends of mine who, who would go on to India. And, and, and like a lot of the early plays were around doing valuation arbitrage when it came to product, right? And, and, and so let's take a bunch of engineers, build a product company, do global M&A. Uh, but eventually, right, I think, you know, as like a lot of these societal enablers came in place, you could have people transacting digitally, that meant, you know, you started seeing businesses built for India. Um, and I think, you know, that I like that quite a bit. Um, the bit that I think, you know, is, and, and so like this is probably just my personal opinion, is, you know, that you had this, this, this feeding frenzy when it came to tech sometime around, you know, 2014 on. And I think, you know, that meant, you know, that, that you had some diffusion of talent um, and, and the actual core execution wasn't there, you know, when you benchmark it. To, to like a lot of the plays that we were seeing internationally, but I think that has changed drastically, and to the point where you know where I look at Indian companies now, you know who are just like you said, they're they're leading, you know the the space when it comes to you know how do you think about mobile payments or building businesses on the back of that, which frankly like you know like a lot of us here in the West, and you know still follow like an old archetype and and haven't really adapted to what the next generation looks. So, you know, just to kind of again shift gears a little bit for comparing the Indian and the and the Silicon Valley ecosystem, I think, in my opinion, the word ecosystem is overused, overrated somewhere, and we kind of tend to compare a lot between, between two geographies. And I also believe that today India is actually looking very different in the sense that, you know, there is a lot of India 2 problems being solved, which is very unique just to the Indian ecosystem, right? You may not even see the similar examples of problems being solved in other geographies around the world. But if you kind of trace back since, again, you've been investing for the last eight years, right? Why do you think Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley today? And, you know, what, what, what can the Indian entrepreneur or the Indian ecosystem learn from Silicon Valley? <clears throat> I think, you know, there's like a, think, you know, there's like a very insightful question. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, think, you know, that like the way that I would say it is that from a cultural perspective, right, is, yeah. is, is Silicon Valley still tends to be like a bit more supportive, um, both within sectors and across sectors. And I would love to, 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 to have that change in the Indian ecosystem. And frankly, it's just a matter of time. You know, uh, you know, as that ecosystem mushrooms, there's more participants, there's more exits. Hopefully, you know, it, it should start to foster that. Um, but I think, you know, that I do want to, 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 you know, to also add is that from my perspective, um, I think, you know, that like the valley is, 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 is it, it feels a bit boring now. Right, and 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 so I feel like like a lot of the the, the problems that we're, we're solving feel like extensions of, of of older problems. Whereas you know what we're seeing in India sometimes feels like we're just skipping one whole generation of tech yes. and, and solving problems you know which might you know which 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 people here might not think of. And so I think you know that like an example is you know that that that, that you have people here in, in Silicon Valley who are trying to solve for self-driving cars. Well, my personal thesis is we'll have India solving first for you know, self-flying drones yeah. b- before than anybody else, right? And I think, you know, there is things like that which, you know, which, which I would look at. And, and so I'll, I'll add a little bit of a, a different angle to this. Is I think the first of all, oh, the first of all is, um, I think the positive of, of the Valley versus India is that Valley, when you're a startup, and especially if you've gotten to a certain, you know, business use success case, a traditional engagement model you look like a real company. You're you're respected. You're engaged in a proper way, right? You're not. 
Um, I think one of the things the Indian ecosystem could benefit, especially the Indian enterprises as they engage with startups, is to give that startup the, the same kind of respect on the table. Uh, today what happens is a lot of times, at least I've seen in observations, uh, where the, the the poor founder and their teams are being slogged for value that they're creating but not being recognized or rewarded in the right way. And I think if you truly, to the audience that's listening in India, if you truly want to help that startup eco-community, the enterprise that's in India needs to give the startup community, especially on the tech side, be it B2B or B2C, that same level of respect. And I think a lot of that behavior needs to evolve. And I think here it has. Uh, yes. Definitely, uh, over yes. time, there is a lot more there. I think that's one. Uh, this, the second point really is that um, how do you, uh, there's an American saying, now, eat your own dog food, right? So in India, how do you know, one startup to other startup eats their own dog food? Meaning, if I'm a startup in India, am I using the other startup that's right you now a block down the, the road from me in Bangalore or in Delhi or anywhere else in the country that I'm using their technology or their, their platforms to really leverage and build up on rather than saying, no, I want to use something that's sitting in the valley. And I think part of it, you then lose that because in the valley ecosystem, everything that you're using to build your next set of tech is pretty much being built here, right? So yes. there is this, uh, it, um, the, the circle, the, the vicious circle, not a vicious, bad choice word, but, <laughs> but there's this circle the of every virtuous circle, thank yes. you. There's that virtuous circle that, that has been built. In India, that needs to be built, right, yes. part of that. So yes. those would be my two additional inputs. And what do you see is the big difference between an Indian founder and a founder here? I mean, it could be an Indian founder in, in Silicon Valley, but but a founder in India versus a founder in Silicon Valley. What, what, what would be probably one big difference or one big characteristic you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, that I might actually be self-selecting just based on like, the things that I've seen. Uh, but I think, you know, that oftentimes, like a lot of the founders here think, you know, that we'll build it and they will come and, and, and it's going to be the best shiny product out there um, and I think you know frankly that has worked for like a few players but hasn't worked for, for others you know Google and Silicon Valley excellent story of that uh, but if you think about um, you know and, and, and speaking from my personal experience just the amount of jugard that you have to do to even get off the ground I think you know that's a very you know and, and, and to me that's a very valuable skill set right and I think you know that that predisposes an Indian founder to, to actually start to, to, to bring in revenue much earlier in, in the cycle than, you know, what a Silicon Valley founder might have to do. And so I think, you know, that to me is, is, is kind of one important characteristic. Um, what I would love to see Indian founders do more, and I feel like they are increasingly doing now, is, is to think more global, right? I think, you know, that like the, the, the kind of first few waves of, of, of tech entrepreneurship that was more rarer to find, um, but I would love to see that trend continuing. So I would love to hear Sanjay's thoughts because before the podcast started, we were talking about, you know, how do, how do you get the founders to think more global, and would get your would love to hear your perspective yeah. there. Um, no, um, the, I I think the the way I, I I would add on to this element is really um, is think about what do you want no. Uh, good founders that I've met, and I've been on the on both sides, right? Trying to fund companies, but also, uh, you know, play active roles in acquisitions of companies. Is that what are you trying to accomplish, right? How well do you understand your vision, and how far can you take it? And if you believe that, you no, know, you have a vision that can can you know 
scale at a, at a very uh, fast pace, then what is the business that you're building behind it? Because when somebody comes in to either you know, merge with you or acquire you or, or you know, give you an exit, uh, they look at whatever you're building in totality, not just the tech, right? Because a lot of times, um, if you're doing just a pure play tech acquisition, that happens in a very early stage of a startup, and, yes. and that's a good idea. But but if you go beyond a certain level, you really have to create that value that you brought on board. And it is a blend of not just the brands that you've taken on, because you know, enterprises would love to see, okay, you've taken a brand on, how do you fit into that? But it's really what's inside it, the talent that you've put in place. Um, and you know, how well you've designed the business that when somebody else takes it, it scales even faster. And that's how you are able to, my view is that's where good founders are able to drive high multiples too, if they want to get out of that piece. So I think um, as a founder, you have to have that as a plan, right? I think, um, and really setting that, uh, you know, whether you can call it OKRs, I think Google had that, or VSC, that Cisco, everybody has that, but this notion of what is your operating plan and how well do you hold yourself to that uh, to really build a business and when do you pivot and who do you pivot for? Are you pivoting every time because the VC meeting said this particular metric was wrong, you're going to drive a different behavior. So I think uh, whether you're here in, in the US or in India where I've seen people struggle as, as uh, founders are uh, not, not having that that plan in place where they know what their top priorities are, not necessarily a model where your priorities pivot because the last meeting put pressure on some metric. Uh, and I think those are the founders that don't succeed. Yeah. Right, in my so opinion. do you also think that founders, the Indian founders yeah. specifically, right, have trouble scaling up even mentally when they actually want to go to global markets and are unable to attract very good talent who can help you build that market, right? Sometimes you have to just bring in people in the team if you don't understand that market. So do you see that happening a lot or do you see them not able to let go? Right. So those are that is, that is a very different uh, kind of behavior change when you want to take your company global. Exactly. It, no, I have come from a personal experience where you know, the two founders um, at Akamai at a very early stage of the company uh, gave the operations of the company to other executives across the board, right? Uh, Tom and Danny, uh, no, Tom Layton became the CEO like in 2013, not not even in the beginning, right? So it was run by professionals because they knew they had a playbook. You know, this is how the model would work. And I think a lot of times with founders, if you, you know, if you hire the right talent um, yeah. and really let the talent take accountability and, and put the right uh, framework in place on how you're going to measure their success vis-a-vis -vis the business metrics or whatever they are and let them build the business for you where you are there as uh, you know an evangelist or a, or a technologist whatever role you want to play but sometimes when this when you what I've seen where, where founders have failed is when they start to play the role of well I know HR better than anybody else I know product better than yes. I know operation and all of a sudden they want their inputs in everything you've now created a very chaotic environment so I am I've actually seen that yes. uh, in two or three cases uh, and that's where struggle becomes because then you're it, it's, a, it's a very weird feeling because you feel like you're letting go of it but then you're involved in everything rather than saying that let the professionals that understand what, what goes, goes there and I think the undertone sometimes I feel is that 
people feel that if they let go they're not letting just go of the co- company but the culture that they've built yes. but cultures evolve right a startup at 20 people when you're in a small room and you're having dinner every day is very different than a startup at 200 where you know half the organization wants to go home at at 8 p.m. and yes. not be. so how do you really you know uh, kind of transition from one uh, one phase to the other by retaining the core principles of what your culture is but then let the new culture Im- kind of get embodied into the company because that's what's going to get it to scale right yes. because ultimately it's about uh, getting you know accelerating your scale uh, or, yeah. or scaling the business right yeah. so so do you syndicate a lot, both of you? I mean, do you kind of work with other angel investors where you co-invested or do you typically lead? I mean, how do you kind of look at your uh, investments? Sure. Uh, so I personally tend to look at it um, in terms of like the networks of individuals, you know, that I can bring to a deal and, and, okay. and, and to help the entrepreneur. And, and so this is tapping into people who I know and, and people that I meet. Yeah. Uh, but I do actually tend to participate in deals. Um, and, 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 and and sometimes if a startup is interesting, we'll, we'll lead, but this is at the pre-seed level. Okay, yeah. okay. So what about uh, Pretty much same. the same. same, pretty much the same. So just wanted to know from your experience again, right? Uh, now shifting gears to the angel investors in the two ecosystems, right? What What is your observation on the, on the investors in India? versus angel investors in the US, how, I mean, what is the collaboration, the behaviors, just some takeaways there? Um, I think, you know, that I'm increasingly seeing, you know, that there's a lot of, 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 of angels that now bring in operational insight, um, you know, which, which back in the day, um, I think, you know, it was like an old money gentleman yeah. who said, you know, well, this is startups in are India or the US? Uh, this is actually in India. Okay. And so okay. I think, you know, that I'm liking that trend quite a bit. And, okay. and, and it, it's something, you know, which I think is beneficial for the ecosystem. Uh, uh, so I'm sorry, what was your, your question? No, so just, just wanting yeah, to look at yeah. the angel investors in India and the US, like what, yeah. what are the behaviors and just kind of comparing that. Yeah. I, I think you know, just to add on uh, uh, to the point is I think in India I would like to see more and more uh, I think to your point more and more of the operating executives come in to invest at that angel level because th- there's a lot of support that that ecosystem can provide right you yes. don't you, you don't want uh, uh, I go back to the point in angel you're betting on the jockey more than the horse you're baking on the founder that they will figure stuff out that they have not been able to on round one and part of it is is you're not then going to constantly run them on pure play financial metrics and i think if you get into a ecosystem where at angel level you're starting to look at their business from a pure pnl perspective you're going to you're going to lose them or, or you're going to lose your own patience as a but so getting some people that have gone through that cycle and i think yeah. there are a few great names in india that have done that successfully yes. and actually those are the founders uh, those are the angels that i've seen uh, success some of them are part of your team uh, yes. rajan is a great is a name uh, that i i truly believe he's done a, a fabulous job of, of creating that model uh, and i think that's really probably an area that the more the India ecosystem evolves, the more successful it will become. Yeah, so we actually, at Let's Venture, we did a study last year where we looked at the angel ecosystem on both sides because, you know, entrepreneurial ecosystem has been compared by many. But looking at what does the investing landscape look like and our data showed us that in, that in the U.S., for every one founder, there were six investors 
in India for every one founder there were 0.2 investors right so there is a lack of angel investors in India today that is one second is very rightly to your point I think uh, there are not too many people who are full-time angel investors right in the US you have scout you have full-time angel investors you have people whose that is their profession so their whole their entire job is to just go look for good deals and then build syndicates right mm. In India, you'll probably, it'll be a handful. It'll be probably not even go on a double digit. If you look at full-time angel investors, right, that is the second trend. And, you know, it is it is very interesting that you mentioned this point about people bringing in operational and executive experience. Because at Let's Venture, which I was mentioning to you, we have unlocked a capital in, in, in India where we are looking at a very different profile of investors coming in. And the profiles are typically entrepreneur turned investors. They are second generation family businesses. They are CXOs of organizations or they are the global India mm. who now want to get more actively engaged with the Indian ecosystem. So that is starting to change if you kind of start looking at it. So just the last question, you know, since we are kind of almost close to the time uh, closure, just, you know, if you were to give your one kind of advice to an Indian founder who's looking to startup whether it's in India or whether it's building a global company or a consumer company in India what would be that if we can have Nishkam start with that yeah and I think you know that I would say that don't be afraid of spending a lot of time on the basics right I think you know that I've seen that like the last few years have been like a bit of a feeding frenzy right and like a lot of the stories coming out of the news about you know of, 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 of companies that have gone from zero to a unicorn within a few months and something which I'd love to see, and, and maybe this is my bias being an operator, is, you know, fix your basics and then, you know, you can think about scaling up. Um, I'll probably say something that's very basic, not just like this company, but it's important is um, figure out what talent you want. Because a lot of times, uh, especially the, uh, sorry, the Indian uh, founders, is they end up uh, compromising on talent a lot of times. They'll the first few people that believe in the story come in and they're part of that core team, good talent, but then the second wave, I've seen at least in my current experience about three to five companies where um, you get attracted to talent because of what's written on that you know, A4 page uh, or what you've heard from somebody, you really haven't experienced it. And I think making sure you're putting that emphasis to get the right talent in the beginning is much easier. It's time well spent uh, because uh, you you don't want to be in a position where you iterate on your talent. You should iterate on your go-to-market strategy. You should iterate on your, uh, or pivot on, on where your customers' needs are, not on your talent. And sometimes what happens is lack of that ends up causing them not to move in the right direction. At least that's my personal observation kind of coming back from enterprise world uh, at Akamai to a startup is when I start to see what's happening, especially you know, very concentrated in the Bangor ecosystem. Yeah, that that's, actually a, that's actually a very good point because I think when we, as founders, when we are looking to hire for our startups, we have to more look at the ability of the person to scale along with the scale of the organization mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than just fit the role at that point of time mm -hmm. because you grow to your level of maximum competency. Exactly. Right? So you want to have people who can last your yeah. life cycle of the startup. Yes. So I have intentionally actually kept away questions of exit and all of that in this podcast because I just thought let's just go go back to the fundamentals of how we look at the two ecosystems. So maybe we'll probably come back to you sometime and talk about how do we look at exits. 
but thank you so much for taking the time out uh, thank you for having us no, yeah. thank was, you for having us yeah. this was thank good you. thank you yes. very much thank you thank you